All right. Let's find our let's find our way to our seats and then we'll talk about the Bible. Let's say a prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for creating us in your image and promising to redeem us as you've created us in glorified bodies. We pray that you would lead us always to look to you, the icon of our perfection, and always strive to be what you've created us to be. We pray this in your most holy name. Amen. Okay, so uh, let's see. Hang on one second. Keep talking. Yes, good. Perfect. Do it, Jan. Perfect. Thanks, Jan. And this is uh, sort of in conjunction with our 150th anniversary. This is all congregation trying to, one of the ways that we're expressing our gratefulness, our gratitude. A service project yeah. for us. And, and right now they're packing food for both East Africa. We've heard about all the famine in East Africa. And um, some of their food's going to the southern part of Haiti because that's another area where there's a big need. Thank you, Jan. Um, there's so many interesting things to talk about, not the least of which is, uh, do you know what this is? Did Pastor Nelson draw this last week? No? This was John Crow on Wednesday. John Crow on Wednesday. Oh, so you, 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 okay, oh, yeah, you gave the answer away. I was going to ask, okay, all right. This is the gospel lesson for this Sunday. So this is just for your reference. It's helpful to know this, right? So Jesus says, this is totally unrelated to anything else we're going to do today. But it's from the Bible, and I'm preaching, so it's, okay. So Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep. Now, confusingly, not ten verses later, he says, I am the good shepherd. 
right? To make matters even more confusing, what does John the Baptist call Jesus at the beginning of the Gospel of John? The Lamb of God, okay? So, Jesus is the Lamb of God, he's the door of the sheep, and he's the shepherd. Not just any shepherd, but the good shepherd, a good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. So, one of the images at play when Jesus talks about being the, the door of the sheep is the, this notion that you have a, a sheep pen where the sheep are safe at night, and on the wall you'd have thistles and... Uh, all, things that would make noise if somebody tries to go over the wall. And there was no actual door but the shepherd himself. So he'd lay there in the, in the entryway. The sheep couldn't go in and out. Also, just for the sake of, just because I'm talking anyways, um, I was curious about this notion of sheep following the voice of their shepherd. Yeah, you, you, so it's startling, right, that Jesus says, if a stranger comes in, anybody who comes in over the gate, over the, the wall, is clearly a stranger, a thief and a robber, only seeking to steal and kill and destroy. But the shepherd comes to the gate, the gatekeeper opens, he comes in, and the sheep hear his voice, and they follow him. They won't follow the voice of a stranger, they'll follow the voice of their shepherd. And you think to yourselves, sheep are dumb animals. Uh, do, can they really recognize the voice of their shepherd? Well, I saw a YouTube video, and it was incredible to me. There was a... a pasture and there were a bunch of people um, that came up to the fence and were hollering at the sheep using the same call that the shepherd uses and the sheep it won't it wasn't a big deal they just ignored them completely ignored them the shepherd walks up and calls to the sheep and immediately all their heads raised up and then they didn't know where they were going they just went to the voice so this is not what I'm preaching on Sunday, but what, what if, I had, if I could preach five sermons on this text, one of them would be, this is the great blessing of being a sheep, right? It's, so sheep get a bad rap. You've heard sermons where sheep are dumb, right? You've heard this before. Sheep are dumb animals. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's about being, uh, Jesus is saying just how much you need him. Well, actually, it's, he's saying how great it is uh, to be a sheep because sheep are obedient. They listen, they hear they recognize the voice and they follow, right? Um, which is exactly what you do. You're great sheep. You, you hear the voice of Jesus. Where do you hear it? He says, take and eat, this is my body. Take and drink, this is my blood. And what do you do? You take and eat and you take and drink. That's great. You're good sheep. So anyway, that's neither here nor there. But um, what else? Uh, what's that? What, where do they fit in the picture? Yeah. So I've tried to carry this analogy on all kinds of different ways. Sometimes, sometimes, yeah. Maybe they're protected. Part of their job is to protect Well, that's, that's, that's certainly true. And to alert the shepherd when the, there's a predator around. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Okay. How was the women's retreat? Did, how many of you went to the women's retreat? A whole bunch of you? You had a good time? How was the venue? How was it at the Marriott? Good. Okay. There were, I don't know, I looked at the numbers. I don't know if this was uh, evident to you while you were there. Between Friday and Saturday, there were 132 women there. It was, it was just incredible. Uh, so thanks for turning out and bringing your friends. Hmm. It blew us out of the water. Not even close. Yeah, absolutely. I concede. Yeah, right. <laughs> you are. Okay. So now here's uh, a couple other things. We're going to meet two more times after this week. The 19th is going to be our last Friday, so next week and then the week after that. We're not going to finish this document, we're going to, so we'll just, we'll, that means that we're free to do what we want. Um, today, John Paul talks about 
how Jesus regards women. So there's a, in, in the Bible, which presents a really great opportunity for us to just sort of explore some of the texts um, in the New Testament. But also, last week, Pastor Nelson showed you a video. Um, what was the title of the video? It was Feminine... Uh, hang on. I just got it working. It's what's called Feminine Beauty Can Lead Us to Heavenly Mysteries. Now, he said, he said you didn't get much of a chance to talk about this. So I'm gonna pre- I'm not, I don't have to play it, and we don't have to talk about it, but would you like to? I heard a yes. Do I hear any no's? Okay. Let's just see what, let's just see what happens. Hopefully it plays. Say, I'm on uh, channel two. Let me... For the guys out there, okay. ladies, you can listen in. I'm sure you can benefit as well. But speaking as a male, one of the main idols in this world is feminine beauty. Why, guys? Why is that one of the main idols we make? Because woman is one of the main icons of heavenly mysteries. And that's what we're really looking for. We want to enter these heavenly mysteries... Indeed, you've heard me say this before in in other videos. Woman is the image of heaven on earth. Why? What is heaven? It's the dwelling place of the Most High God. This, This is the mystery of our faith. That woman's body, through Mary, became, not metaphorically, not poetically, but really and truly, woman's body became the dwelling place of the Most High God. Guys, do you know what this means? It means bedrock Christian principle. God comes to encounter us through woman's body. This means woman's body is holy. This means woman's body is sacred. This means there's an enemy who doesn't want us to know and encounter the true beauty of woman's body. Guys, I know this battle like any guy knows this battle. And here's something that recently happened to me. In the midst of one of these struggles to see woman's body rightly, I was just saying, Lord, I give you this desire in my heart. I give you this attraction to feminine beauty in my heart. I ask you please to untwist in me whatever sin has twisted up so that I might come to see the true beauty of woman as an image of the heavenly bride, as an image of that heavenly dwelling place. And then, I opened the readings for the day that day, and I kid you not, the first reading was from the book of Revelation, and it said, come here, and I will show you the bride. Come here, and I will show you the bride. It was such an affirmation to me that that the Lord was speaking to my heart, saying, "The, the path here, when we are tempted, when we turn feminine beauty into an idol, The right path is not to crush our desire. The right path is not to try to repress all that's going on inside of us. True enough, sometimes you're in a burning building, you got to run like hell out of that burning building. Sure enough. But that's only the first step. We have to allow the Lord into our disordered desires to redirect them towards the truth of the heavenly beauty we long for. My brothers, it's right in Scripture. Come here. The Lord says, and I will show you the bride. We have to give our yearning and desire for feminine beauty to the Lord so that he can show us the bride. 
the true feminine beauty we long for. He's going to lead us. He's going to lead us to the only perfectly beautiful woman there ever was, Mary. And through her beauty, we will come to see a ray of that glory and beauty shining through every woman. And woman's beauty no longer becomes an obstacle to holiness, but the path to it. That's the journey. Stay on it, brothers, and pray for me. Peace. Okay, so there's a lot. So uh, he tells you right off the bat he's directing this comment, these comments towards men, but there's something to be gained by women. So what do you think? What's your, what strikes you? What do you think about it? Have you? Is it a completely new thought to you? Yes. Who said yes? Okay. In what way can you describe how it's a new thought to you? Well, I think on many levels, but um, for women. I think it's a, an amazing way to view yourself as an image of beauty, no matter how you were created or what other people say or look at you. Right. Like, uh, I was reading that, I never got to that Joy Maiden article, I was reading it this morning, mm-hmm. and he said something about how when, you know, women get looked at, you know, like there's a way that they're looked at differently than men are looked at. Right. And I don't know if he was longing for that or what, but I thought that was really kind of a contrast between this video and what he thinks, why people are looking at women that way. Right, right. In fact, this fellow said, um, Joy Layden said that there is no such thing as um, you know, a, fem- a feminine female essence, right? Um, which, it, so what he's saying then is there's just the female body. And so if you look, if you look, all you see is the female body. Christopher West and, the, and uh, the, a biblical understanding of masculinity and femininity says when you see the body, you're seeing the person, right? And so... Um, if you only see the body, or if you think you're only seeing the body, then it gets disordered in this way. There's all kinds of ways it gets disordered. So, uh, uh, for instance, in his case, if, this is, if, you're, if you're right, that he wants to be seen in a certain way, what he desires is to be looked at, in, to be seen the way women are generally seen, which is a, a horrific thing, right? Because, because our eyes are so disordered, right? Um, and in fact... The, the, what strikes me about what Christopher West says is how um, we, we were at a pastor's conference this, earlier this week and another fellow was talking about um, the, the same subject material and what he described as um, sort of the myth of or, or the, the delusion of um, uh, being sort of chastity, being, being able to accomplish looking without lusting, and he described it as white, the, the white-knuckled chastity, right? So for, for men, if, if you're, you know, uh, you, if you're under the law, if you hear God saying, whoever looks at a woman and lusts after in his heart has committed adultery with her already, um, you immediately turn to fear, right? So you're in this white, white-knuckled chastity, and you say, I gotta, I gotta, my eyes have to be turned away entirely, flee like hell from anything, right? Um, but that's disordered as well. Um, because, because there is more to masculinity and femininity than just a body, but the body is reve- reveals 
um, what, what the image of God. And now he says this particularly about Mary, right? So Mary, being the Theotokos, the bearer of God, um, means, that, means that feminine bodies, women's bodies, are um, glorified in this way, honored. Blessed are you among women, right? Why? Because she bears God. Um, which is a striking thing, right? And, and like you said, Holly, it gives, um, it gives honor to bodies uh, completely apart from the way that uh, the world and our culture evaluates them, right? It's not because you look a certain way, but it's because you're created as a, a God-bearer, right? Go ahead. In the early church, uh, when they were making sanctuary are made yeah. beautiful. Is there theology of this back then that has been like suppressed for so long? Like why, why did we make churches so beautiful? Was there this connection between the beauty of femininity and the beauty of where we worship being a mother of God? That's a really good question. Um, and I can't, I can't say for sure. I do know that I, it is valuable to note that um, 500 years ago when at the time of the Reformation um, Protestants took things too far, right? Saying, um, it, 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 so the church has always been at risk of what's called Manichaeism. Splice, we talked about this before, splicing the world into the fleshly thing, the fleshly realm and the spiritual realm, and saying the fleshly is bad and the spiritual is good. Um, this is an ancient heresy. It goes all the way back to the beginning. Um, and church fathers uh, fought against this and, and insisted, no. Um, the create, created beauty is good, right? So this is, what, this is one of the reasons why you have beautiful churches. In the Reformation, this sort of reemerges among Protestants saying anything that detracts from sort of the bare essence of uh, God's word is going to distract us, uh, which runs counter to, you know, everything the Bible says about, for instance, creation groaning for its redemption and the hills proclaiming the glory of God, right? And the Song of Songs. We, Pastor Nelson and I were talking about how we might study Song of Songs next year, right? Which will scandalize you, right? It'll scandalize you, but it also forces you then to have, have a lens that is just totally unfamiliar to us. I mean, the way he talks, the way he talks is just unfathomable, and yet this is the way the, the Bible talks, right? Um, and we have an opportunity. So the great thing is, the great thing about um, sort of forcing ourselves to, to reevaluate is that we have an opportunity to frame um, our lives in a new way, to teach our children, for instance, and to and to be examples to children of um, a proper understanding of feminine beauty. I mean, this is just invaluable, and also a proper understanding of what um, the, of the relationship between masculine and feminine, right? So what does, what, you know, uh, this disordered desire to, um, to grasp or to cling to what's, what's right in front of your eyes right now, that's actually a, sort of a fragment, a, uh, a shadow of a greater desire um, to, to see the beauty of God, right? Okay, I'm just going on and on now. What else? Anything else strike you about that? Yes, Julie. Yeah. Yeah. 
but right. do you find that argument compelling? Would you cling to that idea of, well, okay, well, Lord, help me to like, see Mary? Right, so, so here's what I would do. I'd say, I, I think this, so there's obviously some divergence. He's Roman Catholic, so you, you, you sort of have that at face value. Um, for Lutherans, the, what, we can, what, we, what we always do, what we do about everything, and what we do particularly about Mary is you have, an, you have Mary, um, when you have Mary, you have Jesus. You don't ever have Mary apart from Jesus. So, um, it, so feminine. So what he so his argument would go like this: Feminine beauty draws you towards Mary, the one truly beautiful woman. Why is she truly beautiful? Not because of herself, not because she was glamorous, but because she bore Jesus, right? Um, and, and so you know, it's easy to get it's easy to miss that last step, right? Um, and this is this happened. This is the error. This is where you go astray. But um, so, for instance, Pastor Nelson has shown the kids in pastor chats an icon of Mary holding little baby Jesus, um, and he asks them, "What's who's in this icon?" And Mary's the larger figure, but it's an icon of Jesus. He's a little baby, and he's cuddling with Mary, um, and and they had they have this communication going on. It's it's for him, Pastor Nelson's using it to teach the kids about prayer. So Mary listens to Jesus, ponders in her heart and then repeats the things that she's heard. So, although she's the greater figure, the larger figure in the icon, it's an icon of Jesus, right? Um, and what it, what it tells us is that you don't get Jesus removed from history, removed from time, removed from human bodies, removed from particular people. Like, you don't get Jesus without Mary. And so, um, you know, being led to Mary, if it leads us to Jesus, is a good thing. Yes, Ellen. Don't we as Lutherans kind of venture into this area with a lot of trepidation because, because it's so easy to slip over the line into worshiping Mary rather than appreciating her beauty as the vessel? Right. Yeah, yeah. So, so the, and that's our latent trepidation. Uh, unfortunately, I think um, a lot of it amounts to or stems from sort of a caricature of of what Roman Catholics teach, um, and what and ways Roman Catholics have gone wrong on stuff. Um, uh, Christopher West would never tell you to worship Mary, you know. Um, he uh, that's not, not his point, you know, not not in the least. Um, but some some Roman Catholics might, you know. So it's with it's always with discernment, right? Um, but the great thing is we get to recapture. Something that we, I mean, we don't have a vocabulary for this, right? We don't have a way to talk. Just think about all the way, how, the way that you, the, voc- the vocabulary that we have as Lutherans to talk about bodies. I mean, what do we have? Um, it's pretty impoverished, really. So if we can, if we can enrich that by um, treading delicately, um, it's really valuable. It's a really worthwhile thing. Um, and, 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 you know, here's, here, uh, here's the, another great example of why uh, it's sort of tragic that we don't have this vocabulary. Luther says, you know, bodies are so important. Um, and this is true for Luther when he talks about the Lord's Supper, right? It's Jesus' body and blood. The very same body that was on the cross in the arms of Mary is on the altar. And he says, uh, we, I've said this before, he says if you, 
uh, you know, if you doubt that you're a sinner or you doubt that you need the sacrament, what do you do? You don't, like Rene Descartes, say, I think, therefore I am a sinner. He says, stick your hand inside your shirt and feel if you have, if your heart is still beating. If, you're, if your heart is still beating, then you're a body and you need forgiveness, right? Um, if we, if, so that right, right there is the invitation to think about um, bodies in a more robust way. A richer, a richer way. And not to let, I mean, this is the other thing that always happens. Is, um, if feminine beauty or if, you know, discussing bodies gets co-opted by culture or by biology, um, then we, we uh, concede uh, half, of, half of who we are, right? We can't, let, we can't let those things define the terms in which we speak, right? Um, I just was listening to a sermon which was, uh, was talking about um, about conception, about the about life, the beginning of life, and and I, I was struck because if you said if you said what are so biology lesson right? If you said what are the what are what's necessary for conception? What's necessary for conception? Go ahead, tell me. What do you need? What what a sperm and an egg, right? Which is purely biological, right? Um, it's not strictly true. If you have a sperm and an egg, you have an organism, but you don't have a human because humans are, uh, they have the breath of God, the spirit of God, right? Uh, this is, Adam, God formed Adam from the dust of the earth, but he wasn't human until God breathed into him, right? Um, so if you concede that conception, that humanity consists merely of a sperm and an egg um, and not also this image of this this broken image of God, right, um, and, and God's God's sort of uh, enlivening spirit, right, God's creative activity, um, then then it is just biology. Okay. What else? All right. Let's do this. Uh, just by way of introduction. John Paul says at the beginning of this section, which is number 5, on page 17 in this handout, I'll just read just a a little bit of it here, just to introduce what he's after in this section. He says, The words of the Proto-Evangelium, which is in Genesis, where God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman she will, and, and her offspring and yours, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Right? This is the proto-evangelium, the first gospel. This is where we hear the promise given to the woman that her seed will destroy the serpent, destroy the devil. In the words of the, proto, the, the, words of the proto-evangelium enable us to move into the context of the gospel. So they, they drive us forward to Jesus. Man's redemption, foretold in Genesis, now becomes a reality in the person and mission of Jesus Christ in which we also recognize what the reality of the redemption means for the dignity and vocation of women. This meaning becomes clearer for us from Christ's words and from his whole attitude towards women, an attitude which is extremely simple. This is really important. It's extremely simple and, for this reason, extraordinary if seen against the background of his time. It is an attitude marked by great clarity and depth, Various women appear along the path of the mission of Jesus of Nazareth, and his meeting with each of them is a confirmation of the evangelical newness of life 
already spoken of. And here's, what, here's sort of the crux of it. It's universally admitted, even by people with a critical attitude towards the Christ, Christian message. So it's unavoidable if you read the scriptures. It's unavoidable uh, that in the eyes of his contemporaries, Christ became a promoter of women's true dignity and of the vocation corresponding to this dignity. So set against the context of the ancient Near East, what, how Jesus regards women is utterly revolutionary. It's utterly new. Um, not new, not new in, in the order of creation, but new at the time, new in, in, at that point in history. So from what you know, how would you describe the, the, the dignity and vocation of women in biblical times? What do you think? What, what, kind, of, what kind of language comes to mind? How, how are women regarded? Low. Property, right. Yeah, um, that's right. Property. I think this is, this is a really um, a helpful description. Um, what else? Anything else? Yeah, right. Um, smart, only have, considered smart. Yeah, and only have value in their offspring. Mm-hmm. If there's a male offspring. Right. So, so, uh, so think. So, th- can you think? Just this is great. This is great. Can you think of it, of biblical examples where um, these things, pro- the women as viewed as property and value in childbearing, um, becomes really clear. Okay. Now, um, Ruth is a. So I'll posit this. Ruth is a positive example. Um. She's, she's not regarded as property. And, she's, and her redemption is... Um, but they have no value. She has no value. Okay, good. So, so societally, culturally, she has no value. But the story is all about how she re- receives value from her redeemer, right? Yep, exactly. Good. Okay, what else? Any other examples? Rachel, Jacob's wife. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, and uh, so, I mean, that story is just fascinating in so many ways. Um, Hannah. Hannah. So the, one, of the, one of the most striking things about the story of Rachel, I, so, I, um, Le- so Leah was loved less by Jacob, right? So already you've got problems, right? He's got two wives for one thing. He loves one of them more than another. And Leah's bearing children, and... Uh, Jacob still doesn't love her. So she starts naming her children. Do you know this in the, the story? She starts naming her children. Um, it's great. Let me read it to you. Uh, so Jacob is not, is not regarding, is not affording the, the appropriate dignity to his wives. Um, his wives. Let's see here. Leah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, and now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has also given me this son. She called his name Simeon, which means to have been heard. Right? Um, again, she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. And she calls him Levi. 
Um, then the fourth time, this is what's beautiful about Leah. The fourth time she names her son Judah, saying, I will praise the Lord. Um, at last, this, t- this time I will praise the Lord. So, she, so at that point, she sees her dignity, her, her worth, her honor, not in the regard of her husband, but in God's, God's regard. Um, it's, it's, an incred- it's remarkable. Um, okay. Other examples. So, so in both cases, in both cases, there's fault to be found, right? So, what do you? I mean, well, of course, in Hebrew Old Testament, all that uh, the testimony of a woman didn't count for anything because one of the witnesses had to be two men. Right. Um, there were all kinds of things like that, which kind of showed that women basically had no status. You know, you counted your sons, not your daughters. Right. Um, you know. Yeah, right. So, so now what you, what you, and here's the, an important distinction to make. What you find is that in, in these institutions that don't, that don't inherently degrade women, abuse can happen, right? So saying, saying of a woman that um, her relationship to her husband is really important and her, rela- and her relationship to her children is really important. So, for instance, um, the widow of Nain, we read this in the gospel lesson this morning. Um, Jesus comes across this funeral procession, the, and there's a dead son, right? And, the, and Luke tells us she, he was her only son, and she was a widow, right? So she had nobody, um, and which, which made her subject to abuse, and the appropriate response for a community is to take somebody who has no support and bring them in, support them. This is why, uh, why um, widow, widowhood is a, is a special office in the church in the New Testament um, because it's a, it's a call for um, a new family, in a sense, right? Just like Jesus gives Mary to John from the cross, this is, this is eminently important. Because she ought to belong to a community, she ought to be in a family. Um, so, but but that fact is subject to a, a great deal of abuse, at, at, from which you get the notion of, you know, if you if you identify a woman by the name of her husband, that you're just one step removed from identifying her as property, right? As belonging to her husband, right? Um, Sarah, the wife of Abraham. Well, that that easily translates to Sarah, the wife who belongs to Abraham. Right, which uh, you know, this was the example that came to my mind. Right, um, Sarah was not bearing Abraham a son, so what did he do? He just acquired for himself another woman to bear him a child, but it was out of order, and it was it it produced only trouble. Um, it was him taking his salvation into his own hands. Okay, uh, so good. Now, these are not new things. These are things that sort of pervade um, a lot of cultures, um, and our culture too, right? So now the question is, how does Jesus, how does Jesus work against this? Um, and let's just, just think of stories. Think of stories in the New Testament of how Jesus reverses this. Jan. Well, probably the most prime example is the woman caught in the that was brought before him. Good. And Jesus turns around and says, okay... Right, right. 
So it was, it was a given that um, in this instance where sin was committed, whether it was um, she who initiated it or the fellow who initiated it, she was the one bearing the blame, right? And technically, they should have brought both Yeah. They, absolutely, right? Technically and logically, morally, right? It would have, it was a, would have been the sensible thing to do, but this institution was set up so that uh, they just brought her, and they, and they brought her to test Jesus, right? And he reveals their hypocrisy. But then, it, notice this. We've talked about this before. This is, such a, this is one of my favorite episodes because it's not finally that... Um, so they, the, men, the men all walk away, right? They stop accusing the woman, which is simply to remove their negative view of her. But it's not to afford her a positive view, right? It's not to give her, to give her positive dignity. Where does that come from? From Jesus. From Jesus interceding for her and speaking to her a word of promise, right? Neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more, right? So... Um, he becomes, he becomes the, an archetypical man, right? What, what the men ought to have been, which is to say, um, you, you, you've been uncovered in your shame, right? Your shame has been uncovered. Let me cover your shame, right? Um, which is precisely what Jesus does. Uh, good. What else? Martha. The woman Yes. Right. Yes. What kinds of things did he have to say about her? Yeah, right. She's done a beautiful thing to me. Um, he used, you know, it's almost like he used, he used her to point out to everyone else kind of the schlubs that they were. That's right. Yeah, that is a real word. It's a technical term. Schlubs. We, we all know what you mean. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. So he's in the house of Simon the Pharisee, right? And uh, Simon doesn't offer him any hospitality, right? I came in and you didn't offer me any water to wash my feet. You didn't anoint my head. You didn't, you didn't extend a kiss to me. But this woman has come in and she has not ceased kissing my feet. Using her hair. Now, isn't that interesting? It's remarkable um, and under underappreciated. Um, how are they? How are Jesus and this woman primarily relating? Touch physically, right? Their bodies. Uh, in fact, I was trying to find the text. I don't think he says anything to her. Um, does anybody know where this is? It's in Luke, right? I'm just testing you right now. Um, we, should fi- we should figure this out. Hang on. Here we go. Um, Luke 7, 36. Luke 7, 36. If, if this man were a prophet, Simon says, he, and he knew what sort of woman this is who is touching him, he would have... He would have uh, he would know what sort of a woman she is, for she is a sinner. And Jesus said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And then he tells him this parable about the forgiveness of sins, right? So, and here's the other, here's the other great side to the story. 
He, says to, he finally says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Um, and to Simon and the other Pharisees present, this is sort of the key, the key phrase. Um, verse 47. I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, which is evident because she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. So you, Simon, and you Pharisees loved little because... You've been forgiven little. But she, knowing the, the extent of her forgiveness, loves much. Um, which, so, so Jesus completely reframes the discussion of um, what makes a person valuable. Right? In fact, it has uh, so little to do with your social status. It even has uh, so little to do with your behavior. It has mostly to do with how God regards you, right? And she knows, she has heard that God regards her as a forgiven child, right? That God desires to forgive her. Um, and and she, this, this, uh, this relationship is embodied in her anointing Jesus' feet and wiping them with her hair. Okay, Any other, what other examples? Yeah, Jan. The woman at the well. The woman at the well, right. I mean, she's an outcast from her fellow women. Yeah. She's coming there in the middle of the day. That's not where we normally draw water. Yeah. Through their discussion, you know, Jesus tells her. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, so this is in so John four, and it's a long story. But here are so here are some key points to help us to help us sort of suss this out. Um, as you said, she comes at an odd time. Um, it's not. I'm, I'm a little skeptical. Of, uh, well, it's not. It's not at the central. The, it's not central to the story whether or not she's sort of outcast by her, by her uh, comrades. But it's certainly the impression that we're supposed to receive that she's not a great person, right? Um, because finally, Jesus says to her, seeming to um, fit the paradigm of how of how women were to be guarded, she, he says, "Go call your husband." Right? We're, let's, we're, he and I are going to talk. Okay, and she says to him, "I have no husband." Right? What uh, and what follows? I have no husband, and Jesus says, "It's true, you have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the man you're living with now is not your husband." Right? Um, now, think think about this in terms of shame and uh, and honor. Um, what has Jesus just just done to this woman? So now that's that's true, and 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 she in faith interprets it interprets it that way. Um, but first, at this point, at this at this point in the conversation where Jesus has just revealed that she has had five husbands, and this man that she's living with now is not her husband, what has he done to her? He's exposed her shame, right? Um, is that the same as shaming her? Not quite. It, it would be if if he then pronounced judgment on her. Right? If he exposed her shame in order to um, identify her as shameless. So this is, a, this is a really interesting thing to note. Shame, so shame, we always associate negative connotations with shame. But shame is really the counterpart to honor. Um, and that you, you heard this when we talked about uh, nakedness and shame. Right? So in the garden, they were naked but not ashamed, which is different than being naked and shameless. So shame is something to be guarded. 
And um, when somebody who's shameless is not guarding, is not guarding their shame. Um, honor guards shame um, and, and, and protects it. So Jesus exposes it between the two of them. If he then said, hey, look, everybody, look at, look at her, her shame, revel in her shame, then he would be shaming her. But what does he do? I mean, this is great. He exposes her shame. Why? So, so, yeah, so at, at the basic level so that he can forgive her. But how does he... It's not simply a, oh, you screwed up. Here, I'm going to make it all... I'm gonna, I, it's okay, right? He does even better than that. What, what happens when men and women meet at a well in the Bible? They usually get married. Jacob and Rachel, Moses and his wife Zipporah, Isaac and Rebecca. Well, Isaac wasn't there, but it was at a well. Um, and now here they're at a well, and Jesus um, exposes her shame in order that he can be the one who, who honors her, right? Um, in order that he can be the one who, who finally she's wedded to, right? Because um, her, her, her sort of... Uh, Five marriages and the and the relationship she has right now are all um, icons pointing ahead to something much much better. They're not the final thing, right? So it wouldn't be all okay if she just had a husband, right? That's it wouldn't be all okay. She still needs to have Jesus as her bridegroom, right? So he comes in and says, "Look, you, it's things have gone bad for you. Um, things are not the way they ought to be," and um, presents himself, you know. And where is he, where is, he, uh, where is that, that marriage finally uh, made whole? It's on the cross, right? So this is, John is always pulling us in these stories to the cross where Jesus is glorified. Um, okay, what else? Yeah, go ahead, Julie. The, um, the women are the first witnesses of the resurrection. That's right, yeah. And the gospel writers mince no... No words about this, right? Uh, the, women, the men did not believe. The, the apostles did not believe. The women who heard and saw Jesus believed and went and told the, the, the men, right? Um, you know, which isn't, I mean, you, so it's important for us to distinguish between stereotypes and archetypes, right? So stereotypes are like how men and women are portrayed in sitcoms, right? So if, if, you, if you were going to put this story in a sitcom, you'd have these bunch of bumbling men, you know, oh, shut up. You, you don't know what you're talking about. She's, you know, she's off a rocker. And, um, but that's not, that's not what it is, right? Um, instead, it's significant um, to the, the dignity afforded to women that they saw Jesus and, like Mary, heard what he said, pondered it in their hearts, and repeated it, Right? They were, they were in this receptive posture like Mary was. This Marian posture that these men were struggling, struggling to have. Um, but then they finally did. I mean, Thomas, my Lord and my God, right? He finally takes that, he finally takes that posture. Um, good. Yes? Uh, there's a movie out right now called The Case for Christ, which is about the conversion of Lee Strobel, is it? Yeah, right. Creek. Um, that's that's one of the key things that turned him to Christianity was the fact that the gospel writers 
uh, a credit to the first visits with Jesus after his resurrection to women because in that day it would have been meaningless right. if the women had reported it. Right. And so the fact that they stuck with the story was was uh, one of the things that made it. Yeah. Absolutely. It's a, it's a really astute point, and, and, and the other side of it, too, is that the gospel writers, so not only do they say um, that the testimony of the women was vital, was crucial, but that the church was incredibly skeptical of the notion that Jesus rose from the dead, right? They didn't believe it. They said, this can't be true. We don't know what happened to him. We thought he was going to be the Messiah, the guys on the, on the way to Emmaus, on the road to Emmaus. Um, we thought, it was good. we thought it was all a hoax. Um, they were skeptical, and, and, and even to the point of saying, I need to see the, the holes. I need to stick my hand in his side, right? Carol. Uh, I don't recall Right. Yeah. I mean, they're not all named, but it was just women. Yeah. So I mean, and this is this is um, one of this is one of the things that John Paul means when he says what we get from the Gospels is a really simple um, sort of understanding of the vocation of women. In that, the very fact that you know at the cross, the women who are who remain at the cross are mentioned. Just the fact that they're mentioned is utterly astounding, right? The fact that Jesus stops on the Via Dolorosa and turns to the weeping women and says, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Right? Um, and that am- among the things that he says on the cross are, Woman, behold your son. Right? Um, that it's just the, the fact that that's part of the story, and not, just, and not just part of the story, but a crucial part of the story, um, tells us so much about... Um, about one, for one thing, the differentiation between masculine and feminine, and also the significance, the importance. Right? It's more of a question, but I was just thinking of it. The story of Mary and Martha. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They had a brother, Lazarus, but Mary, he's not mentioned in that story. Right. And I was just thinking, wait a minute. We have thinking two women alone, and here comes this man to have dinner with them, that would seem outrageous. Right. I mean, Jesus has, Jesus has a peculiar relationship with these, with these people. Um, we see it again in John 11 when uh, Lazarus has died, and he shows up, and he has these conversations with Mary and Martha. Um, in, in the Gospels, um, when Jesus talks even to the disciples, they're usually pretty confused, right? I mean, it's, we, we're really excited when Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of God, right? Because at that point, he, and then, he, then the next moment he says, I don't want you to die. What are you talking about? Um, right? But Martha, when Jesus comes to her and says, um, uh, that, um, do, do you, do you, don't you believe that in the resurrection? She says, I know, of course, I believe that he'll rise on the last day. And I know that whatever you ask of the Father, he'll give to you, right? Um, he talks about, this is one of John Paul's points, he talks about, um, Truly, truly mysterious theological matters with Mary and Martha that were utterly astounding to 
to the, to the disciples who were with him all the time, who, in, in, in John's terminology, remained with Jesus. This, they spent all this time with Jesus being taught by him. They said, where, do you, where, are, you, where are you staying? And they went with him, um, and still they're just utterly confused because um, so much of what they, what they believe needs to be turned upside down. Jody. Were women, when Jesus taught like that, Uh, so it depended on where he was, right? So uh, in the outer court, there were not just um, men, but women and Gentiles. Um, so there's, there's this hierarchy. There's this pretty clear structure inside the, inside the temple um, or in, in the area outside the temple, which permitted him to speak to a really broad audience. Um, but there was, a, there was a clear separation. Nancy. Yeah, I mean, getting that theory in Martha, the incident where Martha comes and says, um, aren't you going to tell Mary to come and help me in the kitchen? I mean, that kind of shows his worth. He didn't see women just as somebody who was supposed to do the dirty work right. of the scenes, but that teaching them was also important. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah absolutely. That, uh, discipleship, um, that discipleship was for them. That's right. Yeah, so I, I mean, and, and you get the sense you get the sense from the from the fact that there that we hear these notices of the women following Jesus that they they had heard. I mean, um, why does this why does this sinful woman come and anoint his feet? Well, it's not just she had this funny feeling and she got a yeah yeah right. No, she she had heard what he said and came, right? I think also the woman wasn't Jewish. I'll say, just talk back to Jesus. Sure. Yeah, the Syrophoenician woman. Right. Uh, it's Jesus, and Jesus has this sort of uh, combative conversation with her. It's not good to give to the dogs what belongs to the children. She says, yes, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the table. Right? Um, so he, he not... He, so, I mean, it's a beautiful thing that... She is insistent, like the persistent widow who comes to the judge and knocks again and again. She says, no, you, you have this good thing that you're saying is for me. I want it, right? And that is, apart from, apart from the dignity and honor given by the culture, by the people that surround me, forget all of that. I want the dignity and honor that you have um, to give to me, right? Woman, your faith... Your, your faith, go, go your, your child is healed, right? Um, he says to the Syrophoenician woman, right? And just think about all that, uh, you know, we're approaching it from Jesus honoring these women. How courageous, risky, right. all of that must have been for those women in that time right. to, to take that chance and put themselves out there like that because it could have gone very badly right. for them. And, and that's, a, that's thematic. So, for instance, you've got Esther in the Old Testament, right? Who, Mordecai's kind of a schlub, if you will. Um, and, and so she goes, she, she goes and risks her life to, to save her people, right? She's, she's the queen. Also, one of my favorite stories, um, Abigail and David. David's uh, out, of his, out of his mind, going to kill Abigail's husband because he insulted him. And... Abigail comes and says, let the blame be on me, right? He's a fool. Let the blame be on me. Um, in, in this utterly faithful and courageous act. Um, 
Which, so, and here's the, I think, I think here's the takeaway. Um, what you see in, in those women is, is faith, right? Um, which, on the one hand, um, works really hard. It's a difficult thing. Works really hard to uh, dismantle what the, what the world says about them, right? This is a challenge for all of you, right? Because um, the, world's, the world's trying to tell you who you are. And faith dismantles that and says, as we've said all along, my identity doesn't come from what anybody else. Not, and it's not just like, it's not just an assertion of autonomy. I'm not going to let you tell me who I am. No, it's, I'm not going to let you tell me who I am because somebody else has, is telling me who I am, right? Somebody else is honoring me. And in such a profound, mysterious way that um, nothing else matters, right? Um, that that uh, that God is going to give that God is since He's made me a woman, God is giving me this peculiar gift of um, Marian receptivity of being open to um, the gifts that God has to has to share. Okay, great. Any anything else? Let's. Uh, so next week we'll come back, and the ne- and then the next section is on. Now this is. This is, this is going to be really interesting. It's on motherhood and virginity. So um, just by way of preview, it's important. It's, it's essential in understanding masculinity and femininity to understand that, it's, that those characteristics, those um, essences are bound to motherhood and fatherhood, but not, again, like so many other things, not in a strictly biological sense, Right? Um, and this is the great this is the great joy for the church to say um, that as, as as women you are all mothers and as and as men we 're all fathers, um, but we have to we have to flush that out find out what that means let 's pray, Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, thank you.